Welcome to Let's Talk Agriculture, episode 14. In this podcast, Oliver McIntyre talks to conservationist and director of rewilding Britain, Professor Alistair Driver, about the benefits of rewilding and the difference between rewilding and nature-friendly farming. Here's Oliver. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our latest podcast. As you know, we've been focusing on all sorts of different aspects of sustainability in the agricultural sector and land use sector. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Alistair Driver, who will be talking to us about some alternative land uses, namely rewilding. Alistair, how are you and where in the world are you today? I am very well, thank you, Oliver. And I'm up actually off this week, off from my day job as Director of Rewilding Britain, because I'm also privately advising the Broughton Hall Estate near Skipton in Yorkshire on rewilding part of the estate, about a thousand of 3,000 acres of the estate. Brilliant. You're literally just down the road from me. We could, have, we could have done this in person if we'd talked more. I'm just the other side of Clitheroe. We have met once before, Alistair. It was very briefly, a long time ago. But tell me a little bit about your career path and how have you arrived where you are today with rewilding Britain? Yeah, okay. Well, I was a country naturalist child living a pretty feral existence in the Cotswolds. I was fortunate to have a father who was a country naturalist. And so I was brought up roaming beechwoods and in those days, elm tree lined hedgerows and old apple and cider orchards on the escarpment of the Cotswolds between Gloucester and Stroud. And I spent all of my holidays on a tiny remote island called Bardsey Island off the coast of North Wales, where we rented a cottage every year for every holiday of my entire childhood. We never went anywhere else. And so I was steeped in natural history and, and wildlife and, and a rural existence. Lucky enough then to go to university, get an ecology degree, came out of university, no jobs in conservation back in the late 1970s which it was then, and then found my way over a few years to become the first ever conservation officer for the Thames Water Authority covering the Thames catchment. And that was basically how I built a conservation career. I did that for about 20 years, built a big department. Then I became the national head of conservation for the Environment Agency and again built quite a big department for over 15 years. And so I've had the great privilege to be dealing with hundreds of projects on the ground, nature conservation projects, working with farmers and landowners, and also working at a national policy and strategy level. Now, I left five years ago looking for a new challenge, and very quickly I found it as director of Rewilding Britain. And basically what I'm doing now is I've got the privilege now of doing all the best bits of what I used to deal with when I was in the Environment Agency, which is dealing with projects on the ground again going back to my roots working with farmers and landowners to restore nature but this time at scale big stuff really big stuff and it's hugely rewarding and exciting it absolutely sounds it and i can hear hear the passion for it in your voice it makes me smile that you said every every childhood holiday was on bardsey island I remember we used to go to Anglesey every year on holiday, and I remember my young son getting very upset when we decided to go to Cornwall because he didn't realise there was seaside anywhere else in the UK. He thought it was only on Anglesey. He was about six. It was very sweet at the time. Really pleased to have you chatting to us today. Like I've said, I can hear the passion for what you do in your voice. 
sometimes in the world of agriculture, the topic of rewilding can be quite emotive within the agricultural community. I mean, what what are the goals and aims of Rewild Britain? From the title, it sounds like you want to rewild the whole of the UK. Well, yeah, Rewilding Britain is a very small charity. We're seeking to act as a catalyst for rewilding. And we have an ambition to see the rewilding of 5% of the country. And obviously, that's a very small percentage. But actually, it's still very challenging because currently, it's probably only about 1% of the country one would consider to be rewilding. There are a set of principles which apply. And, and at the moment, as I say, probably 1% of the country meets those principles. And most of that 1% is in Scotland. Yeah, I'm sure I have to kind of just leads to another question in my mind, which is, do you have specific target areas of the UK, as in not sort of geographies, but are you looking more for lowland projects? Because obviously an awful lot of the uplands, as you say, may be halfway there already. There's probably a lot more to do, but they've sort of got a head start. Do you have specific land designations you're looking to get rewilded, or is it just that 5% target? Well, virtually everything we do is opportunistic, responding to people's interests in rewilding so that you know i cover england and wales and i respond to invitations or expressions of interest sometimes people aren't necessarily sold on the idea but they'd like to find out more and like a bit of a steer on what would be involved but when i do visit these sites we we do so knowing that the landowner or the landowning organization is minded to consider it so the first thing to say is that it's where people want to do it. But the second really important thing to say is that it is predominantly always going to be on land that is very marginal in terms of its productivity for food. And it is entirely possible to rewild 5% of the country without impacting on productive land. So the vast majority of the land that these rewilding projects take place on is low-grade farmland or, or woodland. So, yeah, the actual real life conflict with food and farming is very limited. And the other important thing to remember is that all of these rewilding projects also produce food anyway. So for most farmers, rewilding is not going to be an option for them. You know, it's not going to be a sensible option for them for the majority of farmers. We hope that nature friendly farming will be a serious option for most of them. But that's uh, a different thing there is a difference between nature friendly farming and rewilding and we can you know i can talk more about those differences but there's no doubt that most of it can be done on very unproductive land yeah and i think that's probably the point to get across food production can still happen and if you're targeting those marginal areas i mean a concern of mine if you look at that whole net zero biodiversity landscape and habitat creation that the new domestic agricultural bills sort of driving at it's such a complex jigsaw the uk is about 60 65 percent self-sufficient in food production so obviously that 30 40 percent is being imported over which we've got no control or very little control over what the impact of that is on biodiversity and habitat where it's produced, not to mention the food miles and the carbon footprint and everything else. So it's great to hear that food production can still happen on those rewilded areas. The, the other important point to realise is that because of the nature of rewilding projects, meaning that you need to work with natural processes, you need to be trying to restore a healthy balance between grazing animals and vegetation and soils and water, 
It does involve big grazing animals. We don't have bison, elk, beaver and boar throughout most parts of the country. So we are using proxies for some of those species and rare breed cattle are a classic example. So virtually every single rewilding project has rare breed cattle. And one of the benefits of that is that those rare breed cattle are producing high quality meat, less quantity than was produced from the land before, because usually these areas were covered in sheep, large numbers of sheep grazing for prolonged periods. So the sheep numbers come down dramatically, but actually the cattle numbers increase overall across rewilding sites. And they're producing high quality meat, which is sold locally. It's not for export. So you are reducing sheep exports quite significantly, and you are slightly increasing the amount of beef that is produced, and you are selling it all locally. And that you know, that means that this argument about carbon miles actually is not valid in this particular case. It's actually a benefit of doing this kind of work. Yeah, and I think there's a real niche in that production of, as you say, usually with the traditional native breeds in the UK of sort of slightly slower beef, slightly more extensive or massively more extensive production methods. So that's something that will find a ready, ready market and probably find it quite locally, as you say, as well. Obviously, I have a picture in my head of rewilding and, and seeing the sort of flora and fauna aspect of that. You've touched on a few species there. Is there opportunity through re- rewilding to see the reintroduction of some of the species we've lost in the UK? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, rewilding almost always involves lots of interventions to kickstart the recovery of natural processes because we could sit back and wait for things to happen. But we'd be waiting many, many decades, if not a century or more, for nature to recover itself, because some of our species and habitats have been so fragmented, uh, take a very long time. So almost inevitably, there is intervention to kickstart this recovery of nature. In the first few years, I, I describe it as a marathon with a sprint start. The marathon is the rewilding journey. The sprint start is, is multiple intervention to kickstart this recovery. And one of those interventions will be, in certain circumstances, the reintroduction of species, formerly native species, either species that are extinct from the country, which is obviously quite challenging in terms of getting the necessary permissions. Beaver is one of the most recent examples. White-tailed eagle, another example. Both of them were extinct in Britain, but have now been reintroduced. Or the introduction of species which have disappeared from a particular region, like, say, pine martins, for example, or, or red squirrels, etc. So, yeah, great opportunities. I've just crunched some stats on the 43 projects which I've got data for in England and Wales. And so far, there's a list of 47 species that are being reintroduced or being considered for reintroduction. And they're not just the big charismatic megafauna that you might think about. You know, They're not just beavers and and eagles and and white storks. They include a range of plants, uh, invertebrates, reptiles and amphibians, etc. So there's a whole suite of opportunities that people are now considering. Yeah, and I think it's always, you know, when I see the headlines, it's always the reintroduction of beavers, especially in the southwest. It sort of brings to mind there's been some sort of resistance to that in that area, just as has with the white-tailed eagle on the edge of the Scottish coastline. Have you been involved in any of those projects, Alistair? Well, yes, I've been heavily involved in the beaver reintroduction because I was actually first consulted on beaver introduction back in 1987 
when I was conservation officer for the Thames, an anonymous, on behalf of an anonymous benefactor, somebody contacted me to see if we'd like beavers in the Thames. We declined at the time because we want, we thought that Scotland was probably the most suitable place for initial reintroductions to see how it went and what the impacts were. And then, in fact, that's what's happened in the intervening years. But I was, yes, I'm, I am still on the steering group for the Devon Beaver Project, the River, River Otter Beaver Reintroduction Trial. And I'm a passionate believer that we should have them back in all appropriate catchments with the right management arrangements in place. And so I've been involved in making sure that we promote the right management strategy to government to be considered alongside future reintroductions to the wild. How would beavers interact along the riverbank? What what positives would they bring to that sort of ecosystem? Yeah, the positives and the negatives. And, and the positives massively outweigh the negatives. That's the first thing to say. But the proven positives from scientific monitoring and evidence gathering are that they reduce the amount of nutrients and sediment passing downstream. So they trap significant amounts of nitrate, phosphate, and suspended solids in their engineered areas, you know, the areas where they're creating dams and lodges, et cetera, and, and also creating side channels and pools and ponds. They buffer peak flows, so they can play a quite significant role in reducing peak flood flows. They, they help make the rivers less spatey because man has made them more spatey through a history of dredging, straightening, deepening, widening, etc. So they contribute significantly to local flood risk management and to water quality improvements. But perhaps the biggest string to their bow is the amazing opportunities for other wildlife that they create. Because they belong in the in a healthy functioning river system, they have interacted and interrelated with a huge range of other species and bring massive benefits to a wide range of species like amphibians and invertebrates and fish and other mammals such as water voles, for example, through the habitat creation that they perform. And it's interesting for me, you know, I've had my first 20 years of my career were spent restoring rivers and creating wetlands and along come the beavers and do it 10 times better and and for free so yeah massive benefits going back to that sort of initial spark of interest alistair in rewilding could a farmer isolate part of their farm for a sort of rewilding project or would that be better tied in with perhaps neighboring farms to create a larger area without farmers having to put huge percentages of their farm into a rewilding project or does the typical person you're speaking to do they tend to be sort of quite large-scale landowners yeah well what we have to remember is the is the definition of rewilding and the quickest briefest definition i can give you is the large-scale restoration of ecosystems to the point where nature is allowed to take care of itself and large scale is right up front there because if you're working at a large scale, and, and I mean at least several hundreds of acres on block, if you're working at that scale, you're more likely to be less precious about losing a particular species or plant community, for example, from part of your land, because the chances are it's going to appear elsewhere. But if you're managing at a very small scale, say 50 acres or 100 acres, and you've only got one field that's got orchids in it, and obviously you don't want to give up on those orchids, you want to keep them because they're special, then you are going to have to manage that for nature conservation reasons. And therefore, you're not really rewilding. It's great. You're doing nature-friendly farming. We need to see a lot of that, a heck of a lot of that. We at Rewilding Britain uh, would like to see 25% of the land managed to sort of broader mosaics of na nature-friendly 
land uses. So, yeah, great. Carry on doing your best on your small, medium-scale farm. If you want to get into rewilding and you want to operate at a bigger scale and be less precious about the risk of losing certain species from certain areas, then, yes, you need to be teaming up with your neighbours unless you own you know, several hundred acres plus of land. So there are now one or two examples. There's one specific example I know in Devon where three neighbouring small farmers have got together and they've all agreed to give up some of their land adjoining each other to a rewilding project that is now covering nearly 400 acres. And that's, that's fantastic. It's still quite small, but between them, they've got enough for a viable rewilding unit so um can be done but yes most of the landowners i deal with well i only i'll only go out to advise on 250 acres plus simply because i cover the whole country on my own doing this and i have to be selective about focusing on the bigger sites but most of the landowners i deal with they're talking about either they're either large estates or their big land holdings owned by water companies or by the national trust or the mod or other environmental organisations. So where we're getting to, Alistair, is there is a big difference between rewilding and nature-friendly farming. So presumably through the domestic agricultural bill and the strands of elms and the sustainable farm incentive schemes coming in, your projects like the Nature Recovery Programme and the programme to develop more ecosystems, that's a sort of project that you're keen to see, but it's not rewilding at its heart. Well, the first thing to say is that there is a blurred boundary between nature-friendly farming and rewilding. You could you could be nature-friendly farming and decide to move on further up the rewilding spectrum if you were able to operate at scale, because you could gradually relax more over time. But generally speaking, nature-friendly farming will involve maintaining a particular species or a particular habitat or set of habitats and plant communities in a particular area more or less forever. You want to keep that hay meadow there because it's fantastic as it is. And you want to farm that field over there more intensively. And you want to keep that woodland there. You know, that's fine. That's great. And we need lots of that. But if you're rewilding, you have to be more relaxed about that because one of the key principles is letting nature lead. And that means you have to allow nature to make the decisions. Now, I should say that, again, through this number crunching, I've done all of these projects, and it is something that I advise on routinely, there is still in the rewilding sites, there's still 2% of all that land across all these 43 projects. Still 2% of it is managed for nature conservation. It's usually hay meadow, for example, as part of a bigger rewilding site. Because you don't want to give up on the jewels in the crown. If you, Even if you're rewilding, you, you shouldn't be giving up on the best bits because you want the species that are in those best bits to start to move out into the wilder land around. So, yeah, there are elements of compromise, if you like, that apply to most rewilding sites. But that's common sense. Obviously, you should be keeping the best bits. Yeah, and I suppose it's about creating that mosaic of habitats as well, isn't it? And I suppose some of those, you know, you mentioned species-rich hay meadows there. Some of those, given the right plotting and planning, could even become the wildlife corridors to move to the next patch of rewilding or the next patch of nature-friendly farming, I suppose, in time, couldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. You would you would expect them, you know, that's what you want. You want to restore natural processes and remove the man-made interventions that are suppressing nature so that these species can start to move in to where they're best suited in the landscape. 
And so virtually all the projects are allowing that to happen. They're keeping their jewels intact whilst rewilding the rest of the site. And it's, and it's often, I'm generalising now, but if you've got a 3,000-acre estate like the, the one I'm, I'm on this week, it's likely that the landowner might be rewilding, say, a 1,000 acres of it or half of it, and the rest of it will either be in nature conservation management or in much more productive farming. That's a fairly typical arrangement with the with the larger private estates. When you're dealing with NGO land or water company land, they tend to be treating the site as a whole. So generally speaking, it's more likely to be 100% of that area that is is in rewilding. So I suppose some of the work you do with NGOs, there's a bigger picture around it and there's other income drivers, a bit of catchment protection, et cetera, water quality. When you're dealing with the private landowners, potentially they are going to be sort of income foregone from the land that they're looking to rewild. What are the opportunities through rewilding for income generation? Yeah, this is a very, very interesting and exciting aspect. So again, from all this number crunching I've done, I've now got figures that show that the number of jobs, the FTEs, full-time equivalents of jobs, on these 43 rewilding sites, those jobs have gone up by 65% compared with traditional farming pre-rewilding. And that is directly related to the fact that the opportunities for income have increased. And rewilding is basically all about diversifying income. So you're moving from a situation where you've got predominant or entire income coming from one type of farming, often, as I mentioned earlier, sheep intensive sheep farming, large numbers of sheep for long periods. You're moving from that more and more or less single type of farming. There might be a few little extra activities. You're moving from that to few or no sheep, uh, slightly more cattle, sometimes pigs and ponies, but very often other activities. And I can tell you, because I've just done this analysis, that Virtually all of the 43 sites are accessing stewardship payments of some sort, and they would they would be expecting to access ELMS payments, obviously, under the future scheme. Three quarters of them still sell high-quality meat, less quantity, but high quality. And then about half of them are engaging in camping and glamping activities. A third of them, 15 out of 43 sites, have got nature tours, safaris, etc., about a quarter have educational activities that they receive funding for. They might have set up a farm shop and cafe for visitors. So all of those things, plus the access to new funding schemes, either government-led or potentially through private funding mechanisms, those have all increased significantly. And so that's where you're seeing these changes. It's nature tourism, education, and opportunities for funding from foundations and incentive schemes. So actually, between all of this kind of diversification and putting your eggs in more baskets in terms of income, they are then able to recruit more people to do all the sorts of things that go with that. So really, just a, like you say, it's just another wing of that holistic farmer-come-landowner business where your income's being generated, it's diversified income. And it's also bringing people into the countryside so they can see the good work that UK landowners do on a regular basis. Absolutely. And actually, one one other really interesting stat on that is this business about bringing people into these places and encouraging them to get engaged. 
Another stat I've collected is the changes in volunteer numbers. So again, comparing more or less traditional farming with rewilding, and we've seen a 14-fold increase in numbers of volunteers engaged in these sites, going up from 86 volunteers across 43 sites to 1,200 volunteers. So that, that brings with it health and well-being benefits. Those people are actually often engaging in physical activity in a healthy environment. It also brings a sense of ownership, sense of community spirit, because a lot of the volunteers will come from fairly nearby. And so, again, there are, there, there are some really useful rural community resilience benefits coming from these projects. Yeah, that's a staggering increase, isn't it? For up, up to 1,200, that's just amazing. I've briefly touched on it before. Is there potential within a real wilding project to look at that carbon sequestration piece, or is that not something you feel is on the rewilding agenda? Yeah, this is an interesting question. I find it's yes. a fascinating question, whatever you're looking at with carbon at the minute. So hence, I wasn't going to let you get away without without having a quick chat about it. Yeah, well, no, I'm glad you didn't because it's a very important point. And, and the first thing to say is, and I, I've said it before, buying up huge tracts of land to plant non-native sitka or non-native conifers of some sort purely for carbon offsetting, that is not rewilding. Absolutely not. Yes, allowing natural regeneration of trees or where necessary planting native trees to restore a healthy functioning woodland ecosystem, that is, can be definitely part of rewilding. But we do have to make sure we distinguish between these carbon offsetting projects, which some of them may be very worthy in, in biodiversity terms, may involve local communities, but we have to make sure that we keep in our minds that if they're going to be called rewilding projects, they have to deliver on the principles. They have to support people and local communities. Nature has to be leading the way. They've got to support local economies. They've got to be working at scale, and they've got to be for the long term. And those principles are absolutely essential. And if a project isn't delivering on those, then it, it's not rewilding. Alistair, it's been really good to chat to you today. Time has just flown by. It's a subject quite close to my heart as someone who really enjoys the wilder parts of the UK when I can. So it's been fascinating to chat to you. If I could grant you one wish for the UK landscape, I'm sensing I'm going to know the answer to this already, but if I could grant you one wish for the UK landscape for the next 10, 20, 30 years, what would that be? Well, as a lifelong nature conservationist, I want to see us in a position where we've reversed the decline in biodiversity. Because if we achieve that, it will almost certainly meant that we will have started to make large areas of our landscape wilder. But we need to do that through engagement with local communities and people. You know, it, it, it's absolutely not about land abandonment. We want to see healthy, thriving communities existing in this more diversified landscape where there is much richer nature and we genuinely are turning things around for wildlife. And if we do that, in parallel, we will be inevitably successfully starting to mitigate the impacts of climate change through reducing flood risk and improving carbon sequestration, etc. So for me, it's a win-win. And that's why this 5% rewilding target is so important. That's brilliant. I was sensing the 5% was going to come in somewhere, Alistair. <laughs> Presumably, if anybody's listening, who has been curious, thinking about rewilding, wanting to know more about it, you'd be more than happy for them to reach out to you across social media and get in touch with you that way. 
absolutely. Please check out the Rewilding Britain website, particularly check out the Rewilding Network pages. You know, we've got this fantastic network now with over 60 projects on it. These are real life, real world projects. And look at what they're doing. And then you will start to realize all these incredible benefits that rewilding can bring. And you can also start to get a feel for the circumstances where they might be appropriate. Brilliant. Alistair, thank you for your time today. It's been really enjoyable speaking to you. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. And of course, good luck with the 5%. Okay. Thank you very much, Oliver. Really appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and you'll receive a notification when we release our next episode, when we'll take a closer look at another topic facing UK farm businesses and landowners. All of our Let's Talk Agriculture podcasts are available to listen to or download from our Barclays Let's Talk Business channel on Spotify, Apple and SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening. We have a series of podcasts on our Let's Talk Business channel that delve deeper into important business topics and issues. Please add them to your playlist and take a listen. Make money work for you. We're not responsible for, nor do we endorse in any way, third-party websites or their content. The views and opinions expressed in this content don't necessarily reflect the views of Barclays Bank UK PLC, nor should they be taken as statements of policy or intent at Barclays Bank UK PLC. Barclays Bank UK PLC takes no responsibility for the veracity of information intimated by a third party and no warranties or undertakings of any kind, whether expressed or implied, regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information given. Barclays Bank UK PLC takes no liability for the impact of any decisions made based on information contained and views expressed. Barclays Bank UK PLC, authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority.